Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Shushan Purim. So I'm still a little bit out of it, so you'll bear with me. If I'm not 100% clear, I hope I am. Uh, this <laughs> It's that kind of weekend. Uh, last week, I sk- had to skip the Wednesday uh, podcast because preparation for Purim and so forth. And uh, somebody uploaded something I did yesterday, but uh, I would like to stick with my schedule for the Parshas at least. Last week... I talked, I believe, about Parshas Zohar, even though it was, that's not the Seder of the week, the Seder of the week was Vayikra. So we're now at the time of the year, we're into Vayikra Tzav this week here in Baltimore, Tzav, and then Shmini and Tazria and so forth. So what you call one big unit, you know, the Vayikra stuff, which is obviously very technical, Kachamataras, the laws of the Carbonos, laws of the Mishkan Basin Migdash, Abtuma and Tahara, cleanliness, uncleanliness, and so forth. Uh, I would like to make some general remarks rather than concentrate on Parshas Tzav per se. And that is, when you get to Vayikra particular, uh, there's thousands of halachas and uh, little details of dinim. You get some from Rashi, uh, who collects from Talmudic sources. And that's exactly what I talk about today. When you get to the book of Vayikra, um, you're really in the area of what we call Midrash, Medrash. But I know I use that term, and for a lot of people, I don't know what I'm talking about, because a lot of people think Medrash is a bunch of stories. And I don't know out there who's listening exactly, but there are two types of Medrash out there, A and B. Uh, one is the Medrash that you're most likely familiar with, called the Medrash Agada, in which case you're talking about stories. Uh, mostly you find like embraces, most of the stories of... Uh, the events that happened uh, and looked at from different angles, always with a very acute um, grounding in the close reading of the text. But nevertheless, they're all kind of stories, angles. Rashi excerpts from them, and therefore, when you read Chomish and Rashi, especially in Breshish Moses, that sort of thing, you get a nice selection of those. Not all. That's one kind of medrash. The point I want to leave is, the, this kind of medrash has no halachic significance. You don't paskin a shayla from a medrash agada, from a medrash rab and medrash tanchuma. Now I'm going to contrast that with the other type of medrash, medrash B. And that's called medrash halacha, which I don't think so many people are familiar with as they are the first. Medrash halacha. So that's a different thing. That's Tanaitic in origin. And that's all about, as the name gives you, exegesis. In other words, how to read the text of the Chumash, very closely in order, through extra words or missing letters or redundancies or all sorts of things, text reading strategies, the Chazal are pulling out many, many different dinim and halachas, especially little detailed ones, but sometimes biggies. Uh, the three books of the Menish, the classic three books of the Menish, halacha, ABC, is the Mechilta, the Sifra, and the Sifri. The Mechilta is on the book of Shmos, 
the Sifra is on the book of Ikra. Sometimes it's called Torah's Konim. Sifra and Torah's Konim is the same book. And then on by Midbarn Dvarim, it's called Sifri. That's what they are. If you ever open up a reading, which not so many people do, it looks like a Mishnais or a Tosefta. I mean, a bunch of Bryces. When I use the Bryces, I'm talking to Yeshiva people. Rabbi this said this, Rabbi that said that. You know, different debates between Tanoim. It's Tanaitic in origin. Let me make this clear. The Mechotah, the Sifran Sifri, predate the Gemara, predate the Amaraim. As a matter of fact, the Gemara quotes from the Mechotah on Sifran Sifri, and we derive a lot of halachas from the Mechotah on the Sifran Sifri, if you know anything about the Rambam. And so, not everything, not every din comes from the Talmud Bavli, and not every din comes from the Talmud Yushalmi. Some of them come from other sources. Uh, what are these other sources? Primarily the Tosefta, which I'm not going to go into now, and these three books, the Mechotah, the Sifran, the Sifri. So these are quite authoritative in uh, origin and, and authority. Now, uh, Vayikra is the happy hunting ground of the Medrash Halacha. The, most of the rules, because the nature of the book of Vayikra is it's all laws and, and rituals, and uh, not too many stories. And consequently, what do you got in Parshish Tzav? You know, about this carbon and that carbon, and next week is going to be, you know, about the dedication of Mishkan, and then it's going to be about, uh, what do you call it, Tzaras, and Hilchus uh, Nida, you know, all those sorts of, they're very technical. And so, you know, Rishon Latuma, Shani Latuma, you know, Kachi Kachim, Kachim Kalm, these are pretty nitty-gritty, detailed sort of things, which are not for most of the students out there who look at the Chumash. Consequently, you're not familiar with the nature of this, but just take it from me. If you ever read the book of Eichel with Rashi, what he's doing is giving you all kind of little things, mainly taken from the Sifra and from the Gemara. Uh, and so there's a lot more in the text as to what you read in the book of Tzab. There's all huge medrash halacha behind it. And uh, this is where we get the bottom line dinim from. Now what's interesting to me, from a history point of view, because that's who I am, is that the very nature of this uh, way of reading and extracting halachas over there. Very controversial, but many people don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, and here you get to a nitty-gritty fact of history. Maybe I mentioned this a while ago, I don't remember. And that goes to the following. What exactly happened to Har Sinai? When the Jewish people got the Torah, or let me be more exact, when God communicated to Moshe Rabbeinu, which he did in Har Sinai, and subsequently, on X number of occasions. And we don't know how he communicated, but it happened. When he communicated him, did he tell him, just write down the text of the Chumash, or did he do more? Well, if you believe in Torah he did more. Okay, so let's concentrate on Torah What exactly did God tell Moshe orally? Okay, what exactly happened? Now listen closely. Did he tell him a whole bunch of dinim, rules and regulations, unconnected to the text of the Chumash? That's an easy way of saying oral law. Here's what it says in the, in the Chumash about a carbonola. Write this down. And now I'm telling you, Moshe, I'm communicating to you, Moshe, the following 25, 35, 105, doesn't matter how many rules. So when the Kohen does this, he should do that. If the carbon has a, a blemish, he should do that. So it may not be in the text of the Chumash, but I got him telling you this anyway. In which case, Moshe had to have a good memory. And when he came down high Sinai, he had to say, when he taught everything orally, he said, listen, Here's the text that God told me to write. That you can see. And in addition to that, I, Moshe, I'm telling you that God told me, let's say for argument's sake, 105 dinim about Carbonola. 
or about uh, chatas, or about uh, nido, or any of those sorts of things, okay? If what I just said is true, then when you find in the Medrash Halacha, and in the Gemara, the kind of exegetical statements which say, how do you know this and this then? Because notice the Pesach has an extra vav, or it's missing a letter, or there's redundancy, or something like, excuse me, something like that, or there's a Gzei shava or these, these other kinds of what they call hermeneutic rules. Uh, when the Gemara says that, the Gemara is not actually, according to this school of thought, it's not telling you that God told that to Moshe. Meaning, that it's not like Hashem said, listen, I'm going to tell you five din about carbonola. Do you notice something about the ayin and ola? That's a hint to tell you this and this din. You know the word ola appears four times in this parsha. That's to tell you a rule about four. And in other words, the, the text of the Chumash itself the letters, the verses themselves are a code, okay? And properly decoded, they tell you the rules of the oral law. I hope I haven't lost you. So which is it? Is that what happened? Or is that what happened? Is it that God simply told Moshe a whole bunch of rules, like I'm speaking to you right now in this podcast, just verbally? That's one way of understanding it. Alternatively, no. When Hashem told Moshe the text of the Chumash, he told them where the laws, the oral laws, lie hidden within the text of the Chumash or encoded with them. Okay? It's like for a crypto- cryptographer, a cryptanalyst. You understand? It's really there, but you have to know how to decode it. And this is the Chumash Torah. And again, according to that second scenario, when Moshe came down from Har Sinai, when it, or, or whatever exactly happened, he said, look here, I'm going to tell you 105 rules uh about carbonola, watch this. Do you notice this is the word S twice? That's to tell you this rule. Do you notice this redundancy over here? That's to tell you that rule. Do you know there's a letter missing in this verse that should really be there? That's to indicate such and such. Do you notice that there are two olives where there shouldn't be two olives? You know, those sorts of things that you find in the Gemara all the time. There's an extra hay. There's a word coal that doesn't need to be there. There's, a, there's an extra, uh, uh, what shall I say, plural when it should be singular. Those sorts of things. So which is it? Did God just tell him straight, without any reference to the text of the Chumash? Alternatively, did God show him? God, show him. Because I want to be very clear about this. In the letters themselves, in the words themselves, in the text of the Chumash itself, where the laws lie. This is uh, probably most people aren't even familiar with what I just said. It's an ancient uh, argument that goes back long ago. And what's really interesting is, at least to me, historically speaking, it's not necessarily what you think. In the Middle Ages, in the times of Rishonim, starting with Sadigon and many others, the argument was the first, meaning they said that on Harsinai and on other occasions when Hashem communicated to Moshe, what we call the text of the Chumash, he told them all these things just straight, like I'm speaking to you on this podcast. He just said, just memorize or whatever, these many rules about a sukkah, and those many rules about Rosh Hashanah, and these many rules coming up now, Chametz and Pesach, and these many rules about the Karbanol and Karmachatos. And when Moshe came down and taught the Jewish people, Moshe himself, or perhaps his successor, or the successor's successor down the ages, may have said, look at this. You know, this rule, which we know because, by what we call Mesorah, knows that, that literally, that God told this to him, who told to him, told to him, told him, told to me, I just noticed that if you look at this passage backwards or you notice there's something missing, you can see that in there. 
So that may be true, but in terms of historical accuracy, that's not how Hashem told it to Moshe. So let's say what I just told you happened 150 years after the time of Moshe. Somebody noticed the extra iron can be seen as a hint or a reference to the halacha that was told to Moshe on Har Sinai. Fine. So what you're saying is that the law that I'm speaking about was communicated by God to Moshe, but the ayin that I just referenced was invented or discovered or something like that much, much later, 100 years later, 500 years later, 1,000 years later. You know, by the time you get to the Gemara, it's well over 1,000 years, of course, much more. So um, is that what happened? So I hope I haven't taken to a nitty, I haven't confused you, but my friends, this is actually of fundamental importance. You're interested to know exactly what day Abraham Lincoln was shot. You're interested to know how many people were in the Battle of Bulge. But if you ask, what Lamaisa happened when the Torah was given, Mamish, the Torah was given, the Torah Shabbat was given by Rabbanu Shalom to Moshe Rabbeinu, that you say, well, I don't know, it's this way or that way. Look, it's okay with me, but I'm just saying inquiring minds want to know. And as I said before, when you get to the Middle Ages, mainly I think because of the Karaim, you know, they're trying to go against the Karaim. Sadiqon is the main one that started this charge, at least to my knowledge. He's always insisting like this, that it's not based on the Pesukim, it's what Hashem told orally to Moshe. All the dinim that we call, uh, you know, derises, were told, like this podcast, to Moshe Rabbeinu, a ton of rules and regulations, and I'm referring myself now to the Nigla and not to the Nister. I'll leave the Nister out of this. And uh, Moshe would simply communicate all this, and he, or somebody else down the line, found Pesukim, or... Uh, you know, ways of reading the psukim or patterns in the text or something like that, which to their minds indicated the law that was being, that had been told orally already. Now, obviously the main impetus for pushing this line of thought in the time of the Rishonim would be against the Karaites, who were the big problem. They never reformed Jews at that time, they were conservative and secondly, we had the Karaim. The Karaim held, you just read the Chumash and then work it out yourself. And uh, the great argument, and you don't need all the Gemara, the Gemara is a bunch of baloney, according to the Karim. Literally, it's all made up. So the counter-argument by Rishonim, later Gaonim, I'm talking about Haigon, Shvirogon, Sadigon, people like that in the 900s and 1000s is always trying to throw themselves back to the idea, you cannot understand one line in the Chumash, or not much more than that, without resorting to some sort of Mesorah oral tradition. You need an oral law to get there. You know, where do you see Tefillin? What does a Totofos mean? What a, the Chumash refers to the classic, uh, you know, rhetoric uh, you see in the Kuzari, many places like that. The, how do you know what this pussing means? How do you know what that pussing means? How do you know what an asterisk is? You know, uh, how do you know? Unless you say there's an oral law, a tradition, along, which means what I just told you, that God told it to Moshe like I'm speaking to this podcast. Just, you know, straightforward. Uh, and that's why when the Rambam uh, in the 12th century wrote the Sefer Mitzvahs, and he seemed to be fudging it because, you know, the Sefer HaMitzvahs is the book that the Rambam composed and put together, obviously, what he considered to be the Targyang Mitzvahs. The problem, of course, is always that there's a lot more than Targyang Mitzvahs in the Chumash, just start counting, you'll see. So then the Rambam has to say, well, there have to be principles of exclusion. When I say 613, I'm referring to this type and that type, but I'm excluding anything that happens in this category. Uh, and if you don't have principles of exclusion to eliminate a whole bunches of statements in the Chumash, you're going to have a whole lot more than 613. And uh, therefore, you know, uh, let's put it this way, if Hashem said to Avram, Lech Lecha, that's not one of the 613 mitzvahs. That was time-bound, that wasn't the Doros, and uh, it was a mitzvah, you know, it was commanded by God, that is true, but since it didn't have long-term 
you know, uh, implications or long-term uh, uh, require, um, obligations. So therefore, it's not called part of the tag mitzvah. That's just one of them. So in there, I remember the Rambam says something like this. When you see a din in the Gemara, which you see all over the place, which is learned from the Yud Gimel Midos, in other words, the Kalva Chomrik, Zereshavah, Binyanov, all that sort of thing, Shnei Ksuvim, uh, it doesn't automatically mean the Raisa, it doesn't automatically mean the Rabbani. you got to know when to hold them, when to fold them. Which means, which was taken anyway, by contemporaries of Rambam to be saying that if the Gemara is taking something out of exegesis, uh, it doesn't really mean it's the Raisa. Oh, wait a minute, that provoked a big storm. If the Gemara says it's learned out from a din, from one of the Yudgyalaminas, then it's a deraisa. Then, you, of course, then you have the responsibility of counting in part of six or thirty mitzvahs, which makes the the obligation it makes the the, the task much much more difficult. But uh, this is how the Rambam put it. This he goes to great lengths. I remember to discuss this matter. He was blasted by the Ramban, who said, "No, no, if it's from the you know from the Yudgyalamidos that sort of thing, it is a deraisa." And the Rambam himself, in his introduction to Mishnah considers this whole matter and tries to make his own classifications of the mitzvahs. Uh, again, if I'm confusing, I guess that's good, because these are things you should look up. Every Jew ought to know the base of it. I'm not telling you anything deep. Everything I'm saying today is extremely superficial. Everybody should know this. And the Ramam talks about the fact that how you have machlokas debates in the Gemara, and uh, basically says there's things that God told Moshe. I have to remember this. God told Moshe straightforward, and Moshe said, listen, Hashem told me, don't eat a ham sandwich. There's nothing to talk about. There's no machlokas about that, you understand? But there are other things, when Hashem said, like a general statement, then the question is, when you apply it to specific circumstances, God didn't tell every specific circumstance that would ever happen. And over there, you can have difference of opinion and debates, and that's all your arguments in the Gemara. And among there, he said, uh, the Ramah says, there's such a thing called halachal Moshe Mishinai, which means that there's a din which you can't, uh, find a source for in the Chumash. That was confusing to people, because aren't all the laws that you find in the Gemara that say the Raisa supposed to be understood as Halachal Moshe Misenai? And uh, for the, all, the confusion over these terms went on for a long time in the Middle Ages. As I say before, the Ramban really blasted the Ramban on this. There was this guy, ooh, Neubauer. You could see on Neubauer back in the 30s, I think. He wrote this book, Durambam and Divrei Sofrim, I think that's the title. Most Rav Cook put it out. He was a Yaki who was a big Talmud Chacham. Uh, it's going to sound funny to people. He was the uh, head of the Talmud department in the rabbinical seminary in Amsterdam. People didn't even know there was such a thing. It was a, it was a from uh, place in Amsterdam uh, because there were 150,000 Dutch Jews before the uh, Holocaust. And without going into too many biographical details, he was very interested in this topic, and he published a whole book. I got it years ago in Yerushalayim. I think most Rav Cook put it out. Rambam, the Divrei Sofrim, or Rambam, all Divrei Sofrim. And uh, he goes into this in great detail, and he lists all the people down the ages who try to read into the Rambam, the way the Ramban is saying it, and it just reflects the fact that these are controversial matters Although most people don't even uh, know these uh, two ways of thinking exist. You think derisa, uh, derisa, rabbona, rabbona. It's not so simple. What I'm getting at is the funny use of the word asmachta. Anybody in yeshiva will usually think that in the Talmud, when they use the word asmachta, they mean a dindra bonan, meaning a rule that the rabbis made up, not that was God said to Moshe. And the fact that you find it referred to 
in the base of a pasuk in the Chumash, the Gemara says this is a smachta. I mean, it's just a peg. The, 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 the real din was legislated by the Rabbanon, but they just pegged it. They said you can, you can remember it or something like that by associating with this pasuk. But they're not saying that when God gave that pasuk to Moshe Rabbeinu, he said those words. Because of the Rabbanon. But the Rishonim I was just speaking about with you, when they use the word asmachta, they often mean in a different way. They mean a derisa. God said this to Moshe, but he didn't say it in connection with this Pusik. And if you find somebody more, Rabbi Yochum, Mishlok, or somebody like that saying you derive it from this Pusik, then that's actually an asmachta, meaning God didn't say it in connection with that Pusik. Somebody else did, but it still is something that God said. So look what a confusing situation we're left with over here when we try to figure out what's the Raisa, what's the Rabbanan, what's the meaning of asmachta. And uh, I'll just throw in one more piece over here. Uh, which is kind of interesting historically. What I just described happened in the Middle Ages. And speaking historically, the big threat was the Karais. They were the big movement once upon a time. And the trend was to push the idea that less and less was pronounced by Hashem in, in, in the Chumash itself, because the Karais say we can go by the Chumash, but rather to say, no, it's all oral in its origin. And even things that look like you're derived by exegetical rules, are really communicated originally orally by God to Moshe. Therefore, that validates the notion of a Torah Shabbat and it kind of invalidates the Karay position that everything can be done from the Torah Shabbat However, here's the funny thing, my friends. We get to the modern era, the 19th century particularly, with a different set of threats. Uh, what was the big dynamic movements within Judaism from the left? Reformed, the Haskalah, conservative... Modern academic studies, Wissenschaftsjuntum, they call it. These are new scholars that popped up in the modern era, the era you and I live in, in which, first of all, they don't believe in the Torah. Second of all, they don't believe there was ever a Moshe Rabbeinu, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in any of this kind of stuff. So then you just look at the Chomesh, you look at the Gemara, and then you say like this, these drashas, these claims that this Pusik and a missing letter here, or a word S there, refers to uh, this and this din, are implausible. Uh, it shows you how dumb the rabbis are in the Gemara. You know, that sort of approach. That's who they were, the, that, that kind of approach. So, uh, they're dissing the whole project, you understand? So what's really interesting is in the 19th century, all the big writers, from Torah writers, on the Chumash, Mafarsh from the Chumash, go the opposite direction. They try to show you, no, every time it says in the Gemara that you can learn this halacha from this little word here, or that word there, you know, from the decoding the text, as I call it. Uh, sometimes the Gemara will say, Emmanuel, which means that, that the Pasuk in question, although ostensibly has no formal connection with the idea, with the din being given, but it's there anyway, the, the Chazal know it. These are implausible to the modern reader. And so what you find is that the modern Mephoshim, the Frum ones, I'm talking about the Gedoli Torah, they are pushing the other direction. They say, no, 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 it's not foreign, it's not weird, you just are not sufficiently a good enough a scholar. If you read the Chomish very, very closely, you can see that the drushas that the Gemara pulls out are actually make sense. Uh, you just go down the list and you see this over and over again. Sam Sreeval Hirsch, Dixava Kabbalah, Dinitziv, especially the Malbim, and there are others. And what are they doing when you see their writings? And this week is Parsha Tzav. You can speak especially, especially in Vayikro. That's the reason I'm mentioning it today. They're saying that when the Gemara derives this from this and this or these uh, set of words, or decodes is the term I'm using, uh, it's not far-fetched. It's just 
if you don't see it, you haven't thought through it clearly enough. You haven't given it sufficient attention. The Torah has to be read with a microscope, and even then you're not going to be able to understand it because it comes from God. Uh, the best example, I would say, for the average reader out there, if you want to see this, would be uh, Hirsch. Because he's writing in English or German, and he's obviously writing for a general audience. But it's kind of inter- it's always interesting to me. If you want to know the nitty-gritty of the Kachim and the Taras, uh, when you read Vayikra, read it with the commentary of Sam Sarifla Hirsch. Because believe it or not, he goes into all this kind of stuff. And if it's a Machlokis Rishonim, like the Rambam and the Riva and all that, he will bring it down in his commentary. I once read somewhere that there was somebody like from Frankfurt or one of these places, and he went to Eastern Europe, and he didn't know how to learn anything, but they were shocked how, how he knows all Kachim and Tara so well. He said, well, I, knew the, I learned all from the Hirsch Kumish, uh, which is something the average yeshiva guy doesn't do. But again, if you look at the Nitziv, uh, who was obviously a, a Godol, and uh, people like that, you see it uh, a different light. They're, they're trying, they are endeavoring to demonstrate to the reader the cogency of the rabbinic drushes, which are not rabbinic in the argument goes, but they're actually um, giving you a sound uh, reading of the text and decoding it for you. Here's another good one, uh, David C. Hoffman, if any of you ever heard of him, with a big uh, go and a scholar and so forth. Uh, and he, again, he has a commentary on Vayikra. If you want, if, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, if you want to read the book of Vayikra with a different set of uh, lenses, then you get, most of Cook puts it out, you know, his uh, commentary on Vayikra. He's the big uh, fighter against the Bible critics. Um, but again, a very close uh, reading of the uh, text. The uh, king of them all is the Malbim, uh, if you like that sort of thing. Because the Malbim uh, wrote on the whole Tanakh, but the first thing he wrote is the Vayikra. That's the beginning of his career. He wrote in Vayikra. And the reason is what I just told you. Look at Vayikra, Tzav, Shemini, Tazrim, and so on and so forth. And it's all these little, little gritty rules and rules based on this kind of close reading of the Chumash with the, uh, through the exegetical lenses. And in the beginning of... take the, I'm sure everybody has a Malbim around at home or probably in Shoal. If you're interested in this, just for fun, go to Shoal, you'll see, open the Malbim at the beginning of Vayikra, and he has an essay called Ayelas Hashachar, which has 613 paragraphs, in which he makes the argument over there. I mean, look at the great lengths he went, that all these so-called funny-sounding drashas and rules are actually very soundly grounded in a good reading of the text, that the Torah has its own patterns, its own rhetorical style, and if you notice uh, here and there and there and there, they always use these sorts of uh, ways of talking, and uh, like you go through any uh, book, it has its own way of uh, rhetoric, here you have a divine way. I'm talking about, again, I'm dealing with Nigla now, now with Nister. And uh, you simply have to learn it. And if you say it sounds weird or far-fetched to you, you're the lazy scholar, you're the weak one with the IQ, and you don't hop. But don't blame your problems on the text. And again, just uh, you want to have fun this Shabbos. When you go to Shul tonight, when you have a few minutes, open up the Malbim at the beginning of Ayikra, and you will see... A, a kind of a masterpiece, uh, you know, 613, 613 uh, uh, paragraphs. Now, some are a little uh, far-fetched to me, but uh, the mom's smarter than I am, so I guess he knows, but uh, they really give you an idea of the complexity of the textual issues when you get to uh, Parshat Sav and all the other. Parshat Sav is a classic example of this, because mom you have all the rules that are carbonless and all the other things like that, and uh, there are so many uh, halachas and discussions that you find in the uh, Sifrod, in the Torah's Konim, and uh, in the Gemaras, you know, in Zvachim and Ochas, those kind of places, 
And uh, if you want to get a, a little bit of a taste for a whole world of ideas that I think many people aren't even familiar with, uh, then that's the way to go if you want to have a, a different reading or different, let me put it this way, if you want to have a different experience of going through the Shabbosas that are coming up as we go through the Vayikra um, uh, Cedrus, other, you know, other than simply reading some art school or something like that, I think that this will um, give you an awareness of an aspect of our history that most people aren't familiar exists. As I said before, if people are wondering or, or interested in the historical details of recent events, and they should be, there's nothing wrong with that, then Kalvachamri should be more interested in anything else to try to understand the historical details of Marmon Harsinai in such places. Um, and if not, then there's something uh, wrong uh, in, in the system. Anyway, I don't know if I, I hope I did, made sense of what I said today, uh, because again, it's Shishan Purim, but I think I did, and I tried to share with you some of the broad issues that uh, an intelligent person will um, be aware of when he or she is encountering the Sefer Vayikra as an adult. Have a good Shabbos and a good Shushan Purim. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.